I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. An armed mob stormed the United States Capitol on January 6th, the first time that the Capitol has been violently attacked since the War of 1812. On today's episode of We the People, we explore the history of mobs, past, present, and online, with two of America's leading experts on the founders and the mob. Larry Kramer is president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. He also serves as a lecturer at Stanford Law School, where he was previously dean and Richard E. Lang professor of law. He's the author of many books, including The People Themselves, Popular Constitutionalism and Judicial Review. Larry, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. And Colleen Sheehan is Director of Graduate Studies at the Arizona State School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. She is also a member of the National Constitution Center's Madisonian Commission. She is the author of James Madison and the Spirit of Republican Self-Government. Colleen, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Good to be here, Jeff. Larry, your book, The People Themselves, Popular Constitutionalism and Judicial Review, uh, is perhaps the definitive account of the founders and mobs. And as you tell the story, uh, the founders had a different view of mobs at the time of the revolution than they did at the Constitutional Convention. Tell us how they understood the history of mobbing and how, at the time of the revolution, some mobs were perceived as legitimate. So you have to understand that uh, democratic politics as a whole was a lot more popular uh, in that period than we think of it today. We think of it as highly organized. We think of voting as the primary means by which people express their political views directly into government and so on. Whereas in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century, voting was just one device among many uh, that, that that the community used to express itself. So, and partly that's because there's not really a state yet, right? You've got a legislature. Most counties, you've got a sheriff and a magistrate. That's the entire law enforcement mechanism in the, in the county, and so on. And so, there's active engagement in governing by the people as well. Um, and so, there, there's all sorts of devices for that. I mean, uh, the idea of a petition is really active. That's why it's in the First Amendment, even though we almost never refer to it even today. Um, and uh, so you could vote, you could petition, you would call conventions right in the town, people would meet and express themselves, there might be parties, people would give toasts, the toasts actually had a lot of political meaning in context, you would parade, you know, just a whole array of devices that involve popular and expression of views and enforcement of law in an active and engaged way. And, and these were all like highly regulated by customary rules. Um, and you invoke different devices as you needed them. So crowd action, or what we call mobs today, were, was an essential part of that. It was one of the ways in which the community would express opposition to something that, the, that its agents in government were doing. And it ran under really well understood customary rules that you know, went way back. They had developed all through the Middle Ages in Europe and in England. And, and there was legal regulation around it. So for instance, there was this thing called the Riot Act because there was a distinction between a legitimate crowd action and an illegitimate mob action. And if the sheriff thought that the mob was illegitimate, the sheriff would come out and literally read them the riot act. 
right? I mean, read the act to them, and then there would be a discussion among the leaders of the mob, in theory, about whether this was, in fact, legitimate or not, but they would make the ultimate decision and act. And there were targets for which, you know, those things were appropriate or not. So, for instance, if you look at the American Revolution from, say, when it begins in 1763 through the Declaration of Independence, mob action is a central part of it, right? But it's actually understood as a legitimate expression of constitutional opposition by the colonists against Parliament. So Parliament passes the Stamp Act. The colonists try all the earlier devices. They petition and they do all of that, and Parliament is just ignoring them. So they engage in mob action. And the mob action allows them to form. In Boston, they go down to the harbor where the stamped paper is, and they burn it, which is legitimate. They then move on and go to Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson's home, and they wreck his home because it is a mob after all, and that's not legitimate. And so the leaders of the mob in the town compensate the governor for the damage done to his house, but there's no argument that they would compensate for the burned paper. Similarly, the Boston Tea Act, um, for complicated legal reasons, they needed to not have the tea offloaded into the harbor, but it couldn't leave the harbor. So after negotiating for 19 days um, on whether there was a solution to this on the 20th day, because at three weeks, the customs master would take the tea as a tax. So on the 20th day, they went onto the boats and came up with the only solution that they had, which was to dump the tea into the harbor. That was a legitimate mob action, but they had to break some locks in order to get to the tea, and they compensated the ship owner for the locks. So it just gives you this sense of the way in which mob action was a regulated, understood part of active popular politics all through the period. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that history. Uh, Colleen, in your definitive book, James Madison and the Spirit of Republican Self-Government, you describe how it was fear of mobs, in particular Shays Rebellion in 1786 and 87, that led the founders to call the Constitutional Convention and led Madison and others to try to create a constitution that would slow down deliberation to prevent mobs from forming. Tell us about that evolution and how the framers feared mobs and what they did to prevent them. Thanks for that great question, Jeff. Uh, basically, uh, when Madison was preparing his notes leading up to the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 and the, this uh, group of notes that he entitled Vices of the Political System of the United States, he talked about this very problem. I mean, the problem, he said, was instability, injustice, and confusion. I mean, that's the definition of mob rule, instability, injustice, and confusion. And he repeated after the, uh, after the um, Constitutional Convention met and the framers uh, came up with a plan of government that they then set to all the states and for ratification, Madison engaged in that ratification debate along with Hamilton and John Jay to write the Federalist Papers. And the most famous of the Federalist Papers, Federalist 10, Madison starts it off by saying, because this is his first contribution to the Federalists after Jay and, and um, uh, Hamilton have written the first nine essays. Madison starts off by saying, there are these problems of popular government, but the greatest problem of all is faction. And what is faction except the cause of instability, injustice, and confusion. 
So what Madison is trying to do and what the other founders are trying to do, but particularly, I think, led by the brilliance of, of the mind of Madison, is to find a way to have the rule of law, which is the opposite of arbitrary rule, or in other words, mob rule, anarchy, um, to have the rule of law that is behind it, actually, majority rule, but without that majority being a mob or a faction. That's a tall order. And it's a tall order, Jeff, because as you know, no one had ever succeeded in doing this before in the history of the world. And so they had set themselves up to try to do something that uh, many, many, many other civilizations had tried to do, particularly in Greece and Rome. But as Hamilton says in Federalist 9, in those petty republics of ancient Greece and Rome, well, they tried to establish uh, popular government as good government, but it's a history of failure, one failure after another. Even if there's uh, a slight bit of time where there's a momentary ray of glory that breaks forth from the gloom, well, it dazzles us with its fleeting brilliance. We're just left with that history of failure. So this is what the founders of the American Republic set themselves up to. It's an experiment, they said. Can we do this? We want the people themselves, as Professor Kramer has phrased it, the people themselves really to be the rulers in this new republic. But in order for them to be legitimate as rulers, that rule of law has to be based on justice and the general good. It has to be the opposite of that Hobbesian idea of just might makes right. Might is not sufficient. Might has to be on the side of right, or as Madison again put it in Vices, he said the, the challenge here is how do we place power and right on the same side? Power has to get on the side of right, not vice versa. The majority has, and so to do all of this is why we have this elaborate constitutional system of a large republic, representation rather than direct rule, uh, that that it requires our representatives to go back and forth from the seat of government to their constituents. And, and it's not just traveling for the sake of being back and forth, it's to talk with them, to work out these different ideas and these differences, and then to go back to Congress and talk to their colleagues, debate, deliberate, disagree, but try to form a consensus. And that's why we have separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, uh, and bicameralism within the Congress. All of this is meant to refine and enlarge the public views so that majority rule could become just rule. Thank you so much for that. And dear We the People listeners, you've just heard the two great experts on this subject, and I want you to read the people themselves and James Madison and the spirit of Republican self-government for more. Larry, um, take us from the convention through the 19th century. Um, mobbing, as you defined it, crowd action, even the idea that there could be legitimate crowd action, went out of fashion after the convention. Uh, and by the time leading up to the Civil War, when violent mobs were attacking African-Americans, uh, Lincoln denounced 
mobocracy and the rule of passion rather than reason in his Springfield Lyceum address tell us the story of how the founders lost confidence in the idea that there could be legitimate mobs and take us up through the Civil War period? So, so this does not happen in a day, obviously. I mean, the, 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 you know, the founders were active participants in mobbing all through the American Revolution, right? I mean, that's how they waged and it was how they understood constitutional enforcement should take place. Once the, once the revolution has succeeded, you begin to get a different kind of argument. So Shays' Rebellion, which is the most famous one, although it's only one of many that are taking place all up and down the Western fr- uh, frontier, but Shays' Rebellion happens. And it's really interesting. Washington's initial reaction on hearing about Shays' Rebellion is, well, why don't you give them the relief that they're asking for? Because it's understood to be a legitimate uh, expression of opposition by the community. And it's only after he is uh, arguably misinformed, certainly informed in any event by people he trusted, Knox and Hamilton, who suggest to him that this is not one of those legitimate mobs. This is the bad kind of mob. This is the kind of mob we have to worry about, that he flips his position and they use the militia to put down that mob. And at the same time, Sam Adams, who is at this time the governor of the state, and as I say, who was one of the leaders of the mobs all through the American Revolution, his reaction to Shays' Rebellion is, we don't need to do that anymore. Now we have Republican governments. Now the people are themselves directly represented in and by the government, so we don't need this outside the government pressure from the people because we're their direct agents. And that's that's really the beginnings of the shift in terms of how we think about it. It doesn't happen in a day because, as I say, if you read the ratification debates on the Constitution, for instance, they're filled with references. Madison himself in Federalist 45 and 46 talks about, you know, the militias and the other popular devices that are used to control government. But as that framework begins to shift and as Republican politics begins to settle and institutionalize. So you get the formation of political parties, which are an extra governmental device for organizing politics in and through the government. And you get the emergence of a leadership class. And so slowly over time, the notion of turning to these direct popular devices begins to become less and less plausible and more and more plausible is the idea that we work through our representatives who we actually do have control over both through the ballot and through the party system. And you know something else happens, which is as you move into the mid-19th century and the early 19th century, anybody who's ever seen, say, the movie Gangs of New York, you know, gets a sense of what starts to happen, which is the mobs themselves begin to change, um, partly because of the unleashing of democratic energies, which means some breakdown in the in the social hierarchy that had people in the community deferring to, you know, a particular leadership class. And you begin to get these kind of much more violent mobs who are not just protesting legal actions, but are fighting for control over, you know, economic stuff and crime and all of that. So all of these developments are happening simultaneously and growing all through the 19th century. You do continue to have these kinds of political mobs, and they are hearkening back to the same kind of precedents for what they're doing as they are becoming increasingly less legitimate. But right up and through, you know, you take the Fugitive Slave Act is enacted in 1850, you have a lot of mob actions in the North designed to prevent the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act and the return of slaves by communities that are invoking these precedents to say these laws are unconstitutional, we are not gonna allow them to be enforced. And so, as I say, it's a kind of slow, mixed development that over time, though, as, as I say, as, po- as, as politics institutionalizes, as a new leadership class emerges, and as people's relationship to either mobs on the one hand or their officials on the other changes, becomes illegitimate. So that by the, by the time of the Civil War, certainly, 
um, that notion of mobbing has has you know dropped out as a kind of standard tool, much less something that's legitimate and desirable. Colleen, tell us about the shifting attitude toward mob violence that Larry describes in the 19th and 20th century. How did the experience of mob violence before and after the Civil War change constitutional thinking about mobbing, and and how did the constitutional system respond? Hmm. Well, I think Larry's uh, book on this is, you know, uh, just the 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 prime place to look for the histor the historical surroundings of this this whole problem of what you've been calling I think mobism <laughs> a wonderful phrase um, a scary phrase perhaps at least to us today uh, but perhaps I could uh, respond to this in the in the sense of of how Lincoln looked at this uh, particularly in the Lyceum address it's interesting what he does in that address because he sets up uh, the the question of mob violence. And he talks about how it's on the increase and how that, what that is doing is chipping away at not only the rule of law uh, for those people who really don't have much respect for the law, but it's taking good citizens who thought that the rule of law was something that, that they wanted to uphold. And it's making them uh, think that maybe uh, this law is nothing in our land. In other words, it's a crisis crisis of civic faith, just like we're facing in the country today, where there's this distrust that is building because the law doesn't be, seem to be there to be the non-arbitrary uh, uh, force uh, that we can appeal to, to know that there's justice uh, that's a possibility uh, of an outcome in this situation. So what Lincoln does is juxtapose arbitrary rule or mob rule with rule of law. But what's interesting there, Jeff, I think, is that's not the final answer to this because the problem is there are good laws and there are bad laws. And so rule of law is not the end of the story. Uh, the what, That's sort of in the middle because what would be best, at least theoretically, would be some kind of form of discretionary rule where you got it right, like the philosopher king. But that's in theory, right? Uh, in practice, I mean, who is that person and how we're going to find them and will they stay that way? And so we're left with this idea of how do we make uh, within the system of the rule of law, how do we distinguish between good laws and bad laws? And how do we put America on a course of of when there are bad laws changing them. And that's what Lincoln does in the Dred Scott decision is talk about precisely that because he doesn't, the Supreme Court ruling in Dred Scott, Taney's ruling for Lincoln is, is, is tantamount to bad law. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's injustice, of course. And so that's when Lincoln's job really kicks in. He has to be a statesman. He can't change it himself, but he has to lead public opinion because what the people think, what they believe, the, what, what's in their mind, what's in their hearts, that's what's at the core of this thing we call America. Uh, and if we are to be one people, we have to trust each other. There has to be some basic trust in each other and in the rule of law that we the people make. And so this job of statesmanship uh, wasn't only important in the 19th and early 20th century, 
but it's critical to America today. Fascinating. Um, Larry, Colleen perfectly sets up the, the, the duty of statesmanship and the founders, as you describe, and the people themselves, expected that virtuous leaders would ensure that the people were guided by reason rather than passion and by exercising powers of self-government would uh, allow the republic to survive. Today, of course, social media has undermined many of the guardrails that the framers thought would cultivate virtuous leaders and citizens. Uh, To take the most obvious example, Madison believed that the large size of America would make it hard for mobs to discover each other and to organize quickly. Now they can find each other instantly and algorithms radicalize citizens, leading them to embrace false facts as we saw in the organization that led up to the Capitol riot. Describe how changes in technology, social media technology in particular, have undermined the framers' guardrails and made virtuous leaders and citizens harder to triumph. So there's two separate strands, really, in the question that you're asking, um, although they both ultimately end up at the same point, which was the thing that, that Madison and the founders were afraid of was direct democracy and what it could do. So it's not just mobs that he's worried about. It's really, when he talks about faction, it's the faction isn't always mobbing. It's just groups that have a distinct self-interest that can pursue it at the expense of others. So the idea in Federalist 10 is we're going to expand this republic so that it's got lots and lots of different groups, and that's going to have two effects for us. First one, it's going to make it difficult to form a majority faction which can control the legislature and then use it to tyrannize the minority because you're going to have to put together coalitions, and that takes time. And in that time, there's room for the leadership class, which by virtue of the size of the republic are much more likely to be the people in office to engage in the kind of deliberation, not just amongst themselves, but with the community itself, to slow things down, to temper it, to get people to think about reason and justice and not just the passions of the moment. So that's the sort of framework. And it pivotally turns then on the idea of of having to work in government through representatives. That, that the one thing, one of the many things we learn from history is that direct democracy never works. You can have a small community where you can physically do it, but that you never have a small community that's small enough to be homogeneous. So you always have these differences and majorities will tyrannize minorities in that form. So we refine the views through the through the through a, a filter of a leadership class that's then put in a position of engaging in a conversation with the community, and you stand a much better chance of getting to results that are just and right. So now, what, what happens when the internet comes along is the ability of people to do the direct democracy thing on a much larger scale increases, right? I, you know, I've got a crazy uncle who holds all these insane positions, but my crazy uncle actually is all by himself at family events, you know, maybe he can find one or two other crazy uncles in the world, um, but, but not many. Suddenly the internet enables my crazy uncle to find all the other crazy uncles in the world and to organize and act. I mean, it's a very interesting thing to think that creating direct democracy through technology will not fail as badly as having direct democracy in person. It makes it even worse, if anything, right? But that's what the, it makes it worse because you don't even have the face-to-face stuff that at least tempers often the way we 
talk about our, each other and, and other groups. So it, it fans even more the flames of passion and short-term thinking and hatred that direct democracy doesn't do enough to damp down. And so when you begin to use the internet to organize outside and you no longer have to go through the government and these formal political structures as a way of creating group action, that's when you're you're basically back to the problem that the whole constitution was designed to to prevent from happening and that was the key contribution that made popular government possible in the first place and so we're seeing exactly what you would expect which is pressures that are threatening the cohesion of the democratic society altogether um yeah thank you for refining the question so thoughtfully Colleen, as a member of the National Constitution Center's Madisonian Commission, you wrote a paper about the effects of social media technology on the Madisonian system and talked about the ways that it undermined the Madisonian solutions of uh, representation and geographic size. Describe your views about how that happened and how, as a result, we're living something like Madison's Nightmare. Well, Madison's uh, solution to the small republic argument, in other words, or direct democracy argument, is the problem there, just as Larry has just said, is what might be called a contagion of passion. And for Madison, he's talking about, he's talking about the base passion. He's talking about prejudices and narrow self-interest. And when people can communicate too easily on that, they can form, if they want to, if they can get enough takers a majority, and that majority will oppress a minority. So Madison's solution was to extend the republic and so that you have more space. And with more space that you have to cover, it's going to take more time to build a majority opinion. And during that time of building the majority opinion, Madison's hope was that there would be all these kinds of means, ways and means to build and refine and enlarge and cultivate and form and educate a more reasonable public opinion. But what happens when communication is as swift as it is, or in other words, uh, when what uh, on Star Trek they, uh, they posited could possibly happen with this warp speed uh, has almost come true. Uh, almost faster than the speed of light, where in which opinions, bad opinions, any opinions, but including bad opinions can be communicated. And um, people sometimes will jump on board. And there's this contagion, it's like a disease spreading. And of course, that makes for uh, arbitrary rule for injustice, for whether it's mob or not, uh, it's, it's oppressive to the rights of others. So what to do about this? So the Madison solution uh, doesn't quite work like it used to work because the large republic has the same problems as the small republic now. Not totally. There's still a multiplicity of different interests and in religious sects, and that's still there as checks. And we still have separation of powers, checks and balances, and so on. So there's still a lot in place. But we need to pay more attention to what to do about this. I'll say, Jeff, that the one thing Madison for sure would not say we should do is engage in cancel culture. Stopping uh, people from trying to shut them down, shut down an opinion because you disagree with it, would be the last thing in the world 
Uh, no matter what your opinion is, for the most part, as long as it's not, you know, actually acting to cry fire in a crowded theater. Uh, you have to let people say what they think, no matter how much you disagree with them. Put it to the test. Put it to the test of deliberation, debate. Engage with our fellow citizens, Madison would say. Remember, this is what he says in the Virginia report and his reaction to the alien and sedition laws. He doesn't think that we should be we should be accusing others of sedition at the drop of a hat because he thinks that free communication, free speech, the free exchange of ideas and opinions is the bedrock of popular government. Uh, and so uh, what I would hope is that we could have some disagreement uh, amidst ultimately working for to become one people again. Um, President Biden is talking about unity. One of the ways I think that we might be able to promote unity is to promote discussion. If we stop talking, then this democracy is at an end. If we stop talking and exchanging ideas, there's no hope for the future. You know, this, this for example, this um, 1776 commission that was disbanded, I would suggest let it stay and ask that the 1619 folks come together with the 1776 commission and let's talk about what this country means, what, what an accurate portrayal of our history is. Um, not shut each other off. It's time to get back to the Madisonian uh, uh, solution to the problems that we face by discourse, public discourse and deliberation. Larry Colleen has given us an inspiring account of the classical liberal position embraced by Madison and Louis Brandeis that the best response to evil speech is good speech. And as long as there's time enough for deliberation, as Brandeis said in the Whitney case, then reason will prevail. Do you agree analyzing the problem? And when you look at, in particular, the question of online radicalization that can lead to violence and the way people can go down internet rabbit holes to embrace false facts, does the Madisonian classical liberal faith still hold true? Or do you see other interventions or solutions that are necessary? Both. <laughs> so what I would say is, of course, I do also share the sort of core notion around free speech and that we have to engage in rational debate with each other, that, that it's not a solution to just shut things down. Um, but I do think that the that the new technology raises new issues that require us to rethink what it takes in order to produce that kind of public engagement. So there is two different speech issues happening at the same time in this country. When most people are thinking about cancel culture, a lot of what they're thinking about are things that are happening on campus, in person, between groups, in a very traditional setting. Whereas what's happening online is a different problem altogether. And the lack of regulation is actually shutting down more speech. Uh, than anything else, because you have a new way in which to shut down speech. So I think about it this way. Imagine I'm going to take something different. In the 19th century, we have a law of torts, right? How to deal with accidents that take place on the highway. And it has rules of causation and, and injury and, you know, all the different pieces of it. But, and they're all, we argue about what they mean. That's the sort of explicit cost balance, uh, cost benefit balance that's built into it. And that's true for all law and all rights, 
There's no such thing as an absolute right. All rights have an implicit cost-benefit analysis, even speech. You can't falsely cry fire in a crowded theater because we know that's going to cause more harm than the benefit of that speech is worth. So now what happens is in the 20th century, the car comes along and suddenly that technology has changed not the explicit cost-benefit analysis, but an implicit one that people weren't even aware of because it was just part of the world as it was given to them. So in the 19th century, very few people were actually getting hurt in accidents on the highway because they were on horses and in buggies and moving not that fast. Suddenly in the 20th century, they're moving in cars, lots of them much faster, different problem altogether. So we rethink fundamentally. We don't just continue to play with the explicit cost-benefit analysis. We rethink the underlying premises and change tort law altogether. I think something similar has happened to speech. So that Brandeisian doctrine that the answer to bad speech is more speech it's not really true, but it was true enough in a world in which the amount of bad speech to which people were getting exposed was relatively limited because of the nature of the technology, right? Imagine it's 1964 and somebody comes to you and says, I have a really great story. Lyndon Johnson is running a child trafficking ring out of a pizza parlor. Let's get this story out. Well, in 1964, that story would never have gotten out to the mass public. Right? because the nature of technology was such that the groups that had access to mass public were actually responsible in, in, in what they would put out and what they wouldn't. The internet comes along and you have a kind of direct democracy now on speech, and it sounds great until you realize the downsides it creates in terms of mob action to bully people out of talking, to drown them in all sorts of ways. And so the internet, at least for speech on the internet, does require some fundamental rethinking of how should we think, you know, the libertarian notion doesn't work on the internet in quite the same way. So we have to think if we want to produce the kind of rational debate that is pivotal to a, a democratic republic, what are we going to need to do on this technology in order to make that possible? Because the, the thing that works in the real world doesn't work in the virtual world. Colleen, if cancel culture is not the answer to the problem of online radicalization, what is the New York Times recently ran a piece about a highly educated woman, as it happened, she was a college classmate of mine, who became a QAnon conspiracy theorist because the Facebook likes and Facebook algorithms reinforced false facts that sent her down a rabbit hole. And an MIT study that found that falsehoods are 70% more likely to be retweeted than the truth, uh, whereas people who engage in more analytical thinking and taking time to deliberate are more likely to discern truth from falsehood. So this question of algorithmic radicalization is a complicated one. Uh, what might some solutions be? You know, Jeff, I just recently, uh, at the prodding of um, some millennials, watched this film called The Social Dilemma. And I knew there were problems. Uh, it pointed out uh, all kinds of things about these algorithms and so on and how this is, you know, pushing people down these rabbit holes, as you talked about. And so when Larry says, you know, we we can't just have more speech, we have to do something about this. My question is, who's the we? You know, I mean, because if it's, you know, think of Alistair McIntyre's title of that book, Who's Justice? Which Rationality? I mean, who's making this decision? And if it's Twitter and if it's Facebook, I'm not sure at all that that's the way to go about this because what's happening now, Jeff, with the media, of course, is this old idea of this responsible objectivity and presenting the story, the news doesn't seem to be the standard anymore. What's been put in its place is this idea of consciousness, 
false consciousness and critical theory. And so one person's truth is another person's falsehood. And this is what we're facing. To, so Larry is absolutely right that these problems are much, they're not just more, they're different than we faced in the past. And they're going to take a great amount of creative thinking to address in such a way that we don't just establish new despots. Because what despots always want to do is silence those who would communicate their ideas to form an alliance to challenge them. And so that one of the things we absolutely have to avoid is that kind of despotic behavior, whether it's on the part of Twitter or Facebook or the government or friends towards other friends just saying, I'm going to cancel you out and unfriend you because I don't like your politics. Um, I don't know the answer, but I do know that the answer is not uh, to make people be quiet and to cancel them out. Larry, we began by talking about physical mobs resulting in violence, and we're now talking about online disinformation that may or may not lead to radicalized uh, violence. Um, what, uh, as Colleen says, entrusting the platforms to make these decisions is problematic. Facebook is about to hear an appeal on its new Supreme Court of whether or not a lifetime ban of President Trump is consistent with free speech values and um, that, that's a difficult uh, case. We'll hear what the board has to say about it. What is your, uh, you've studied this question at the Hewlett Foundation and as a scholar, to the degree that we can no longer agree about facts, and as Colleen says, one person's truth is another's falsehood, what interventions do you think are most effective in helping citizens take the time to deliberate so that we can agree on a common understanding of facts? So there's a number of different ways to think about that. First, just to frame the issue at large, in the old world, in the pre-internet world, you know, we stood at a peak and we were afraid of sliding down the slope if we allowed regulation. So we went with a strong libertarian notion on the assumption because the harms of doing that were not anywhere near the benefits of doing it. But the technology change has done is make it actually, the, it's not clear that we're worse off taking the chance on sliding down some kind of regulatory slope, because what we know is if we do nothing, sticking with the libertarian world, I don't think dem democracy will survive. I don't think it can survive this technology and what it does. So like Colleen, do I have the answer? No, I do think there are places we can start to think about it, but it's not enough to say, well, it's problematic to have the platforms do it, it is. It's problematic to have government do it, it is. Regulation is problematic, it's risky. The problem is, so is no regulation at this point and arguably riskier even than some of the regula regulatory options. Now, it's not as though we have nowhere to look. For instance, in most of Western Europe, for different reasons, given their history, they have actually had modest regulations of speech along the lines that we have not allowed or needed here that work tolerably well. I think actually quite well. I certainly don't think if you go to France or England, although there are forms of speech that are regulated in ways that we don't allow, that you know the, the public as a whole is significantly less free or anything like that. You know, And so it's not to say we should just wholesale import European forms of regulation, but they are things to look at from which we can learn and begin to study. And we're going to have to figure out some other system, which is obviously going to involve the government to some extent, but we don't know what. The truth is private companies have always regulated speech. In the example I gave earlier in 1964, why would that speech not have gotten out to the public? Because those three big networks and those handful of big newspapers that controlled access to the large public wouldn't have put it online. 
or wouldn't have put it into their content. And, and we were comfortable with that. There was modest government regulation as well. We had a fairness doctrine and so on. So, you know, what we're talking about is versions of that to take into account the internet. I think the issue that we have to deal with, which is the mass exposure of, of irresponsible bad information is actually manageable. What do the platforms do? It's They're not like the old world in the sense that they're feeding you the information, right? So in 1964, you could have, somebody would have run that extremist story about the trafficking in a pizza parlor, the Communist Party paper, the John Birch Society paper. But most people wouldn't have seen that because you'd only get that if you went out of your way to get it. You had to go to your newsstand and buy it or subscribe to it. And most people didn't do that. The platforms don't wait for you. They feed it to you through their algorithms that they think you might find it interesting. And if you look, they feed you still more of it. And if it doesn't get to you that way, they let anybody in your network who sees it pass it along to you. So the friction is gone from the system and people are getting this stuff and it has the effect that it will predictably have. You could solve this problem by simply restoring the same kind of friction, saying to Facebook, for instance, you can be the world's largest newsstand, make everything available, but you, you can't put it into your algorithm. People have to go out and subscribe to this stuff and maybe they have to resubscribe once a month. And yeah, you can pass along to somebody that you read an article, but you can't pass them the link. You can just say, I read this great article in Chicks on the Right. You should like look it up, but the person would have to go look it up themselves. My view is even that little bit of friction would probably be enough to significantly reduce this problem by restoring in a 21st century technology context the thing about 20th century technology that prevented the bad speech from having the effects that it did, but didn't prevent the good speech from reaching people because you know, people are getting those channels and would continue to do so. That's an example. We just need to think creatively about this. Colleen, as a classical liberal, what do you think of Larry's creative suggestion that Facebook, by reintroducing friction and not algorithmically uh, suggesting uh, like posts in a race to the bottom might increase Madisonian deliberation? And then I wonder whether you think that the problem we began with, which is violent mobs that organize online but result in real-world violence, as we saw at the Capitol, and we also saw in Myanmar where a genocide was incited on Facebook by Myanmar's military. Is that the same problem as what people call Twitter mobs uh, and Facebook mobs where groups express strong disapproval uh, in a cancel culture kind of way that don't result in physical violence? Well, I think the answer to the second question, Jeff, is no, they're not the same. Uh, both might be uh, uh, at bottom uh, not very helpful to uh, the common good, to civic alliance, civic trust, but they're very different things. To incite to violence is punishable by law and should be if it's truly inciting to violence. Uh, for people to be rude to each other and to unfriend and so on, I don't like it. I think it's silly, uh, but it shouldn't be illegal. <laughs> um, you can't have, you, there, you can't unfriend if you can't, uh, if once you start uh, legally determining who can unfriend, then I guess you're also determining who, who can be friends. And, and of course, uh, we don't want government there. Uh, on but see, this goes to this, I think, the same uh, question as, as actually your first one, because Larry's idea of friction, I would be absolutely willing to uh, want to think about this more. Um, uh, 
Larry is one of the, the best legal minds uh, right at the top in the country. He's got solutions uh, that are always worth hearing and is also someone who uh, is very respectful to people's rights and liberties. And so um, let's talk about that. Let's think about there. Is, is there a way that we can put more obstacles in the way of these kinds of things doing so much damage, possibly uh, uh, fatal damage to our country that would also be consistent with civil liberties and civil rights. Now, having said that, I think the problem, however, is no matter what obstacles we put in the way and try to do something um, through these kinds of legal channels, at bottom, the problem has to do with our character as a people. Larry had mentioned that um, a number of years ago, those kinds of stories that are so ridiculously false and um, harmful to other people, uh, if not libelous, just wouldn't have gotten out. They wouldn't have been printed. In other words, the media, the people in the media wouldn't, that would not have printed those things. They saw their jobs differently. What changed? Why are we now living in a society when even our leaders, the, the, the elites, who are um, the poets of our society, telling the story of our society, that they, that they are, don't see their job anymore. The people in the news don't see their job anymore as reporting the news. They want to tell us how to think. Um, and, and, and both sides want to ramp it up to make things as sometimes as ugly as possible because that gets people's attention no matter how untrue the stories might be. So I think ultimately what we have to work on is not just legal means, but trying to find a way to reclaim in our nation an understanding not just of freedom, but of responsible freedom, of self-government. Uh, free government cannot work if the people themselves uh, are incapable of governing themselves. Harriet Beecher Stowe, at the core of her novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, she said this, they who cannot govern themselves cannot govern others. That's the problem, a big part of the problem we're facing, I think, in the nation today. And we are in need of, very much in need of civic education, of a relearning of the tools of self-government in order to get over the, the terrible dangers that we face before us. Thank you so much for that. It's time for closing thoughts in this fascinating and illuminating conversation. Uh, uh, Colleen reminds us that for the framers, uh, self-government in the political sense re relied on self-government in the personal sense. Individual citizens had to govern themselves to master our unreasonable and selfish passions so that we could be guided by reason, and that required virtue. I'll ask each of you for final observations, but, but Larry, how can American citizens, through education and the Constitution, uh, recover the sense of self-government and virtue necessary for reasoned self-government? Thank you for that question. And I have to return a compliment to Colleen because she said some nice things, but I, I will say my own understanding of so much of this actually grew out of uh, things she wrote that I read um, when I was beginning to learn all this myself, particularly sort of the rethinking of Madison in light of some of the writings that people hadn't paid any attention to. It's really amazingly important work. 
just have to say that. Um, you know, in terms of these uh, larger, broader issues, I, I guess I have three interlocking observations to make. So one is about the role of history and thinking about it, because very much of, say, the mob action that you're seeing uh, today, people are hearkening back to, you know, we're just in this great American tradition. You see the same thing in the Second Amendment debate about guns with no sense of the significance of changing context. Right. I mean, in the 18th century, I would have worn a wig and that would have looked right because that's the way fashion was. If I put that wig on today, I'll look like an idiot, not because there's something inherently different about the wig, but because the context in which the wig is being worn is completely changed. And that's equally true for law as it is for fashion. The law is understood in a context. And as the context changes, if you don't change your understanding of the law or the practice, you're missing the boat. So mobs in the 18th century are not a precedent for mobs today because so much changed the nature and structure of government, the nature and structure of the informal political structure, just everything about politics is different. So you need to think about the evolution across American history of these things in order to understand them. That's one. Second point is, nevertheless, there are some core ideas, values, um, recognition that drove people at the founding that remain valid today that we need to think about because we can look at them and say those things haven't changed. So one of the key ones is the susceptibility of people to short-term passions, to us and themness, to, to tearing each other, to all of those things that that, that system was designed to tamp down and regulate and, and steer in the direction of reason and justice. And those core aspects of human nature haven't changed at all. The, the key insight, you know, we don't like to use the word elites because it signals something that sounds like a, a nobility or, you know, or some kind of um, oligarchy. And, and that's not really the idea, but there is a notion that is built into the founding that is much of what we've lost today, which is that there do need to be mediating devices that sift between the responsible and the irresponsible, and that we can trust to do that, and that people actually do trust to do that. So if we've lost anything over the last 30 or 40 years, it's that, right? Our political parties have disappeared. They no longer do what they used to do. Our media have fragmented and you could not forget the crazy stuff that I was talking about. Even the mainstream media are hardly responsible uh, in any meaningful way. Um, the, the broad acceptance of minimal notions of truth um, we're not talking about disagreements about facts here. We're talking about people who are self-consciously promoting what they know to be lies because it advances their ideology. That would have been unacceptable across the political spectrum at any time in American history. Um, no, that's not quite right. <laughs> at an earlier time in American history, it wouldn't have mattered because you had a political elite to whom people were deferring that believed in those. In the 20th century, as we really did democratize, what made it work was those elite institutions, though, nevertheless, uh, respected those lines. And now we've lost it at both levels and, and we have a real problem going forward. So what we really need to be thinking about doing is rebuilding trust in a set of institutions that political institutions, media institutions, that can perform the function that Colleen mentioned is at the heart of Madison's Federalist 10, which remains valid today, right? Which is, which is tamping down the bad effects of faction and steering the conversation toward the reasonable, the right, and the just. Understanding that we're going to disagree about that, but, but nevertheless being able to do it in a process where there's enough sense of shared community and enough sense of shared premises that we can find those places of agreement and move forward. And as I say, if I think we've lost anything, it's, 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 there are those institutions, nobody has faith in any of them anymore. Colleen, your closing thoughts about how 
America can inspire citizens to recover the sense of virtuous self-government that the founders thought was necessary for the survival of the republic. Well, first of all, I want to say ditto. Um, I want to say what Larry just said. So you could just re- re- rewind and replay that tape. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, here's the, here's the thing. Uh, self-government, it's hard, hard, hard work. We have taken upon ourselves as a nation since our inception this idea that it's not good enough uh, simply to reject despotism. We want to be ruled. We want to rule ourselves and we want to do it right. We want to be fair to others. Uh, It's not enough to have democracy. We've got to have just democratic government. This is the biggest challenge there could possibly be for a society. And it is the American challenge. And I think um, this hard, hard work of self-government, there's no panacea. It has to happen at at home and families. It has to happen in schools. It has to happen in society. It's civic education isn't always formal. Uh, There's a a reason we have the National Constitution Center in the great uh, city of Philadelphia. And it's not just a building. It's a building that's meant, as far as I understand it, to investigate again what this country and this constitution is about and to see if by chance um, it can live on. And and to do that is going to require the work of many hands and many minds, teachers, parents, government officials, concerned citizens, um, I will say one of the one of the things that America's that people are fighting about in America today is what it means to be human. This is so fundamental, uh, and and whether we even want to accept this old Constitution and Declaration as we go forward, or whether we've got a better idea. But one of the things I think that's going to make or break us is that we have to get clear on what America has always stood for, to know whether we want to keep it and try to improve it or whether we want to reject it because we think we've got a better idea. Uh, And there's a lot of not telling the truth these days Um, in in a very almost lackadaisical way. Well, no, I guess it's a pretty darn serious way. There's a lot of not telling the truth about our nation's past. And if we cannot tell the the truth about our nation's past, there won't be any future for our nation. So I think we have to start there. And it's partly a job uh, to happen in families, in schools, uh, in the society. Um, And the Constitution Center is a a good place to to, um, be one of the leaders in this effort. Thank you so much, Colleen Sheehan and Larry Kramer, for a truly inspiring discussion. I agree with you that the Constitution Center has a unique and meaningful role in convening the conversations about what the country is about, what it means to be human, and how we can continue the deliberation that is necessary if we are to keep the Republic. I've learned so much from both of your scholarship and on behalf of We the People listeners who have learned so much from this conversation, I want to thank you for a shining light of 
enlightened conversation about the U.S. Constitution. Larry, Colleen, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff and Larry. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts, and it was produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly and timely dose of constitutional debate. And always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired to learn by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.